At first glimpse, supergroups sound like an exciting and promising thing. Members of multiple great bands coming together to form a brand new band, mixing their styles together. It sounds like a great thing in theory. However, a vast majority of supergroups are ill-fated and honestly rather underwhelming if you ask me, including Velvet Revolver, especially when you consider the fact that three former Guns N' Roses members had once again aligned themselves with yet another loose cannon frontman, this time, Stone Temple Pilot singer Scott Weiland. This is how Velvet Revolver fell to pieces. Although Velvet Revolver's first record, Contraband, was released in 2004, the origins of the band actually go back to 2001, when Slash had disbanded his first solo project, Slash's Snake Pit, for the second time, following the release of their record, Ain't Life Grand. Upon the disbanding, Slash began working with both an unnamed bass player as well as the Black Crows drummer, Steve Gorman, where the trio would ultimately write the music for what would end up becoming Fall to Pieces. Also in 2001, Duff McKagan would reform his band, Loaded, to record their debut album, Dark Days, after a failed previous attempt to record a record under his own name, titled Beautiful Disease, which was never able to be released publicly due to a merger between the label that McKagan was on at the time, Polygram, and uh, Universal, which saw McKagan lose the rights to be able to release Beautiful Disease. In 2002, the following year after reforming Loaded, Duff would enlist Dave Kushner, formerly of Dave Navarro's solo band on guitar, who of course would wind up becoming the rhythm guitarist in what would eventually become Velvet Revolver and the not-so-distant future. Velvet Revolver would really begin to take shape that same year in 2002, at a benefit show following the tragic passing of former Motley Crue and Ozzy Osbourne drummer Randy Castillo. A benefit in Castillo's honor had been held, with Slash and Duff reuniting with their former GNR bandmate, drummer Matt Sorum, who by that time had already rejoined his pre-GNR band, The Cult, rejoining in 1999. The trio was joined in their performance by both Be Real and Send Dog of Cypress Hill, along with Buckcherry frontman Josh Todd and guitarist Keith Nelson, who would end up working with the former GNR members for a brief time, as by that point, Buckcherry had essentially imploded. Together, they worked on a number of songs. I believe Josh had recorded around 10 songs or so, uh, including Dirty Little Thing, which Keith Nelson holds a writing credit on. I'm not 100% sure on this, as it's been quite some time since I read Slash's bio, but I believe in the book he says that Josh, uh, his singing was a little bit off-key, which ultimately played a little bit of a role in the whole thing not working out. One quick thing regarding Dirty Little Thing, there was actually a plagiarism dispute over the main riff in the song, with a former member of a band called Dirty Deeds, what an original band name that is, uh, claiming that the riff was a direct ripoff of a Dirty Deeds song called Cyber Babe, and believe it or not, they were actually successful in their claim. Here's a very quick clip of Cyber Babe so that you can hear the similarity to Dirty Little Thing. Slash and Dave Kushner, who were previously friends in their school days, were reintroduced by Duff at a loaded show at the legendary Viper Room in Hollywood, which led to Kushner getting an invite to jam with the guys, 
uh, ultimately leading to him joining what would eventually become Velvet Revolver. For a very brief moment in time, former GNR rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin was also somewhat involved in the project, with Slash recalling Stradlin's suggestion that Duff and Stradlin sing while they uh, get a van and do a club tour around the U.S., although he would wind up distancing himself from the band following an unsuccessful audition uh, from atheist and former neurotica vocalist Kelly Schaefer. I got to imagine that it would be extremely difficult, though, going from stadiums and arenas uh, back in the day with Guns N' Roses to going to clubs with this new band. I, I don't know. It just... Seems like it would be a total mindfuck and definitely an ego check. My God. The search for a lead singer became quite the project, though, resulting in a VH1 documentary temporarily named the project before ultimately settling on VH1 Inside Out, the rise of Velvet Revolver. They went through a number of auditions, including Sebastian Bach, which would have been very, very interesting. Obviously, Sebastian's a phenomenal vocalist, but he also has a very close relationship with Axl Rose, and in those days, there was this intense animosity between Axl and his former bandmates. Definitely would have been interesting to see how that whole thing would have played out. Other guys that auditioned included Travis Meeks of Days of the New and Todd Kearns, formerly of Age of Electric, who of course would wind up uh, joining Slash's solo band, The Conspirators, down the road, alongside vocalist Miles Kennedy, who actually declined a, a, an offer to audition for Velvet Revolver alongside Faith No More's Mike Patton and Matt Sorum's now former bandmate Ian Asbury from The Cult. Stone Temple Pilots vocalist Scott Weiland had also declined an invitation, although according to him, it was an invitation to join the band, never an invitation to audition, recalling in a 2007 interview with the Washington Post, I ran into Duff at the gym and he told me they were forming a new band and that I should check it out and see if it's something I'd be into. They gave me two different CDs with about 40 to 50 songs. The first CD was basically atrocious. It was stuff they'd also written with Izzy Stradlin and it sounded like bad company gone wrong. I told them I was busy and wasn't really interested in the idea. About three months after that, I got another CD with some more songs and there were two that I thought were pretty good. One was called Slither. I thought it sounded a lot like Stone Temple Pilots around Core, like Piece of Pie or Wicked Garden. In my head, I was thinking, what would I do with this? If you listen to the vocal on it, it's like very much Core era Scott Weiland. During that time, my wife and Duff's wife became friends, and they lobbied me to join the band. What ended up happening was, my wife and I separated. She was with her kids in LA, and I was living in our apartment in Hollywood doing a lot of drugs. And those guys were clean at that time. I said that if I did get into this band, it might be an opportunity to hook up with some guys who aren't using and had gone down the same sort of path that I had. Right around that time, their manager called me and said there were two soundtrack opportunities on the table for a lot of money. Do the songs, get a big paycheck, and if you find out you work well together, just take it from there. I didn't show up the first day because I was loaded and couldn't make it, but I came the next day and we got together and started working out Pink Floyd's money and writing a new song, Set Me Free, and I joined. But never, ever, ever, never did I try out. For reference, the two soundtrack opportunities were in the movie Hulk, uh, which featured Set Me Free, and The Italian Job, which featured the Pink Floyd cover of Money. With a singer finally in place, all that was left to do was decide on a name for the project, with Slash coming up with inspiration from a somewhat unlikely place, as he had watched a movie produced by Revolution Studios, 
who at that time uh, had produced movies such as Black Hawk Down, The Master of Disguise, and Made in Manhattan, which I don't care. I guarantee you that's where Slash uh, saw the name uh, Revolution Studios. It's got to be made in Manhattan. In all reality, Revolution Studios led to him thinking of the name Revolver, and upon bringing that name to the rest of the guys, Scott Weiland suggested that they call it Black Velvet Revolver, as he liked the idea of, quote, something intimate like velvet juxtaposed with something deadly like a gun. They, of course, eventually settled on shortening Black Velvet Revolver to Velvet Revolver, with a press conference in LA to formally announce the new project, with them performing both Set Me Free and Slither alongside covers of GNR, Nirvana, and Sex Pistols. Velvet Revolver began working on their debut album, Contraband, with Scott Weiland having plenty of time to work on his lyrics for the record, as in the midst of working on the album, he was arrested for drug possession in the parking lot of the studio that he was working in, and somewhat ironically and hilariously, on the very same day that he recorded the vocal for Fall to Pieces. After what I'm sure turned out to be quite a bidding war between RCA, Chrysalis, Warner Bros, and Elektra, the band elected to sign with RCA and eventually released their debut album, Contraband, which ended up selling over a quarter million copies first week, partially due to the success of Slither, which had been released as a single just a couple of weeks prior to the record releasing, and it debuted at number one on the Billboard 200. The record would go on to sell over 4 million copies worldwide, with nearly 3 million of those sales in the U.S. alone. A quick sidebar, while doing press to promote the record, the band appeared on the Howard Stern Show, where Slash gave what has to be one of the funniest moments in radio ever uh, as he cusses on the air realizes that he said something he shouldn't have and then proceeds to cuss again here's the clip I was only there for a limited amount of time because i decided i'm not this up you know no, While Contraband reviewed pretty well for the most part and saw them win numerous awards, uh, including a Grammy for Slither, things within the band began to fall to pieces, uh, if you will, as the band went on the road for nearly two years to support Contraband, with Slash recalling to Spinner.com back in a 2010 interview, Velvet Revolver was intended to be a lot of fun and we started off having a great time, but I think that we all had a lot of chemical issues as that thing wore on. I definitely went way down the fucking drain for a minute there after the contraband record came out and we went on tour for two years. I started drinking heavily and revisited my opiate passion, then had to come out of it, so eventually I had to say, that's it. Certainly Scott had his issues, even Duff and Matt went down the same road. The only one that stayed sober during the whole thing was fucking Dave Kushner. Shortly after the contraband world tour ended, Wyland announced that the next Velvet Revolver record would be a concept album titled Libertad, although according to Matt Sorum, Wyland had come up with the title before anything had even been written for the record although the name Libertad did stick. Libertad was initially set to be produced by the legendary Rick Rubin, but due to some of his methods and really not being present during a majority of the sessions, that whole thing fizzled out quickly. And honestly, that's a complaint that we've heard about Rick Rubin before from a number of other uh, musicians, including Slipknot frontman Corey Taylor, who would actually go on to record roughly 10 songs with Velvet Revolver down the road, 
uh, which we'll get into here in a moment. When things dissolved with Rick Rubin, Wyland had suggested that the band work with Brendan O'Brien, with whom he had previous history with in Stone Temple Pilots, working on Core, uh, Purple, Tiny Music, and Number 4, of which the band took him up on. Interestingly, though, during the writing for Libertad, Velvet Revolver's manager was in talks with Axl Rose about having Rose switch management companies, which prompted Wyland to believe that the, the classic era of GNR was going to reunite. Uh, so for a moment, he wasn't going to even record Libertad, although he was eventually convinced otherwise, and probably with Duff and Slash telling him, not in this lifetime, oh the irony. By early 2007, work on Libertad was complete, with a set of shows in South America set for the spring to support Aerosmith, but just before the South American run took place, Velvet Revolver was tapped to induct Van Halen into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and also perform Ain't Talking About Love and Run Around. And woof, the performance is rough to say the very, very least, especially when you consider the level of musicianship uh, in Velvet Revolver. But my God, what a fucking shit show. Holy moly. Libertad was finally released in July of 2007, just about a month following the release of a sort of teaser EP uh, titled Melody and the Tyranny, which featured She Builds Quick Machines and Just 16 from Libertad, as well as Psycho Killer, a Talking Heads cover. While the album received okay reviews and peaked at number five on the Billboard 200, the reviews just weren't as great as they were for Contraband, and I tend to agree. I think that Libertad is good, not great, certainly not as good as Contraband, but Velvet Revolver as a whole, I don't know, I just always felt something, uh, there was something a little underwhelming about the band. Don't really know what the band is, I, I do think they're good, I am a fan of the band, but I don't know, to me, I just always felt that something was missing, although to be honest, I don't really know what that thing uh, that I felt was missing is. The band did more extensive touring in support of Libertad, including a number of festival appearances and a US run with Alice in Chains. There was also an Australian tour on the books, although this would wind up being uh, postponed and then ultimately canceled as Wyland entered rehab. He was also arrested in November of 07 yet again, this time for a DUI. In early 2008, the band embarked on the Rock and Roll As It Should Be tour, which would turn out to be the very last Velvet Revolver tour, with Duff McKagan recalling in a 2009 interview with Bullseye, the thing with Scott started to go south pretty soon after that Libertad tour started. He got back into his old ways and it was pretty apparent. Like, you know, we were trying to get him to pull back, saying, dude, you can't even just fuck around. I'm just drinking. And then it went from there. It was really sad to watch. At the band show in Glasgow in March of 08, Wyland would announce on stage that it would be the band's last ever tour, although he was unaware that the rest of the members of the band had planned to fire him following that tour. Barring just one one-off reunion show down the road, the final Velvet Revolver show, at least with them as an active band, would take place in the Netherlands on April 1st, 2008, which would also be the very same day that Wyland's departure from the band would be announced. Speaking at the time in an interview with Classic Rock, Wyland had this to say, I'm not saying that I'm innocent in this, but everybody's at this place where the fucking finger is getting pointed and they're all pointing the finger at me. When you think about it, isn't it ironic that the band is regurgitating the same story that they did with Axl Rose in their last band, where the lead singer was being demonized? 
Originally, I thought, what a troll he must have been. What an evil man. But you know what? I have to say that I have an entirely different opinion of him today. Upon Wyland's exit, the search was back on for a replacement singer with auditionees rumored to include Sebastian Bach again, uh, Linkin Park's Chester Bennington, who of course would later go on to replace Scott Wyland after he departed from STP for a second time, uh, Miles Kennedy, who of course would end up joining Slash's solo band, The Conspirators, uh, being in there for quite some time now, and of course, as we mentioned earlier, Slipknot and Stone Sour frontman Corey Taylor. For a very brief period, Scars on Broadway guitarist Frankie Perez had actually been hired as the new singer for Velvet Revolver, as according to Dave Kushner in a 2018 interview, we had this guy, Frankie Perez, who is still a good friend of mine, who's a fucking amazing singer. We actually told him he was in the band. He was the only guy that actually got hired. But then we kept recording stuff with him and it just kind of... The longer we worked with him, the less it felt right. And there was other factors. I think Slash was getting ready to do a solo record, and I think his head was already kind of over there at that point. While the band had never settled on a replacement for Wyland, hopes had risen for a reunion with Wyland uh, in early 2012 when the lineup reunited for a one-off benefit show. And then later that same year in April, Wyland stated in an interview that he would like to permanently reunite with Velvet Revolver. Any and all hope for a permanent Velvet Revolver reunion with Wyland would end in late 2015, though, when Scott Wyland had tragically passed away at the age of 48 on his tour bus in Minnesota while on tour with his solo band, The Wildabouts. Shortly thereafter, Slash and Duff would reunite with Axl Rose in Guns N' Roses, essentially closing the book on Velvet Revolver, at least for the time being. Speaking of books, though, a brand new coffee table photo book of Velvet Revolver uh, from the legendary photographer Ross Halfen is now available for pre-order, although for a whopping $224, although I guess when you think about it, there's only 500 uh, numbered copies worldwide, I guess, but still, my God, that's the price is a little steep, but definitely will be a cool book nonetheless. While it feels doubtful that we'll get anything new from Velvet Revolver, I guess never say not in this lifetime, and you can still somewhat get your fix as GNR plays Slither at their shows, but uh, I don't know, perhaps, no pun intended, it's about time they move on and remove that song from the set list. <laughs> All right, though, I gotta run. My fiance is waiting for my big machine to slither inside her, so I gotta go. But thanks so much for watching. Feel free to subscribe if you wanna see more, and I will see you next time. <laughs>